Christmas Day, and I invite you to turn, a bit loud there, I invite you to turn with me to your copy of God's Word to the book of Luke this morning. We're going to take a brief break uh, from our exposition in the Gospel of John, and if you would turn with me to Luke's Gospel, if you have one of the Bibles or would like a Bible, we do have them available in the foyer, and if you have one of those, you can find Luke chapter 24 on page 516. Luke chapter 24. And let us read together verses 13 through 32. Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 32. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus Himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know Him. And He said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered Him to be condemned to death and crucified Him. But we were hoping that it was He who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find His body, they came saying, that they had also seen a vision of angels who said He was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but Him they did not see. Then He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into His glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, He expounded to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and He indicated that He would have gone farther, but they constrained Him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening and the day is far spent. And He went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as He sat at the table with them, that He took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew Him, and He vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while He talked with us on the road, and while He opened the Scriptures to us? Amen. May God add His blessing to the reading of His Word. If you would, please, let's unite our hearts and let us go to God one final time in prayer before we come to the preaching of His Word. Let us pray. Our Father, what a joyous day every Lord's Day is when we gather as Your redeemed people because of the life and death and resurrection from the dead of our Lord Jesus. Father, what comfort and assurance You give to Your people from Your Word. Lord, from the the prophets of the Old Testament to the fulfillment in the New Testament, You have always kept every single one of Your promises. And in Christ, all the promises of God are yes and amen. Father, we thank You this Lord's Day that we come again gathered as a people to worship the risen Christ. To give to Him our adoration. To give to Him our worship and our service. To learn more of His glories. Father, we pray that You would open our eyes to see Him as He opened these two disciples' eyes. 
We pray, Father, that we would behold wondrous things in Your Word. Lord, cause our hearts to rejoice. Lord, knowing that Christ lives and ever lives for us to intercede for us should cause every day of our lives to be one of hope and joy. Father, we confess that we too often lose sight of these glorious, eternal realities. We get caught up in the mundane things of life. We let things cause us to be anxious that we shouldn't allow. We pray, Father, You would renew in our minds the significance of how the resurrection of Christ changes everything. That because He is the first to rise from the dead, the first fruits, that all of us who are in Christ also shall rise from the dead to eternal life. All who are in Christ will know the joys of eternal blessedness, enjoying the glories of heaven, enjoying the glory of God. Father, we pray that You'd minister to our hearts. Send Your Holy Spirit, we pray. We pray, Lord, for any who are here who are outside of Christ and who do not know Christ, we pray, Lord, by Your Spirit, move powerfully in their hearts. We pray that You would enlighten their minds. That You would remove the objections. Remove the resistance. And that You would give childlike faith that they too would come to the foot of the cross. That they would trust Christ to forgive them of their sins and trust in His resurrection to be their justification. We pray, Father, You would draw near to us that You would glorify Yourself. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I want to begin with a brief, just momentary clarification this morning before we turn our, our attention to our text. And that is this. I trust that most of us understand that Christians and Christian churches are under no biblical mandate or biblical obligation to preach on the resurrection every third Sunday in April every year. Um, the church calendar, as it's called, is not a command of God that comes to us in the Scriptures. Because every Sunday is called the Lord's Day because it is on this day, the first day of the week, that Christ the Lord rose from the grave. And that's why Christians worship on every Sunday, not Saturday, because Sunday marks the beginning of the new creation when the glorified Christ stepped out of the tomb. Okay, so I just want us to be clear on that. We could have continued in our exposition of the Gospel of John and gone on to John chapter 2, and it would have been just as important and just as significant of a Lord's Day for us. However, just because we're not bound to preach on the resurrection on this Sunday doesn't mean that we can't focus in our preaching on the resurrection. And I personally think that it's good to be stirred up by way of reminder of things that we already know and already believe. For instance, 1 Corinthians verse, uh, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says to the church, I remind you, brothers, of the gospel. He wants to remind these Christians of what they had already known and already come to believe. And the same is true for us. We need reminders because we leak. Just like you get hungry four hours after you eat a meal, so also our souls get hungry again and again for the nourishment of truth. And it's in that vein this morning that I simply want us to be stirred up by way of reminder, stirred up in our rejoicing that Christ the Lord is risen today. That He who died in weakness a spectacle of shame, taking our sins into the grave, that same One has risen bodily now to reign forevermore. And the simple truth and reminder of Christ rising from the dead gives hope to the doubting Christian. Christians need to be reminded often of the simple fact that Christ lives. It gives hope to the doubting. It gives strength to the weak and the weary. It gives comfort to the suffering. Whether, whether, it's, whether you're here and you're a young child with childlike faith and you are simply clinging to the truth that Jesus miraculously rose from the dead, or whether you're here and you're a well-studied adult 
The truth of the resurrection of Christ is a most strengthening and joyous truth for us. While Christians love and rejoice in in the doctrine of the resurrection, the world around us mocks the idea of resurrection. And that's for a variety of reasons. Not only because the idea of resurrection sounds so strange to them, but because the implications that the resurrection has upon their lives, if it is indeed true. If you think about it, the resurrection is kind of the end of all arguments. Because it's very hard to speak against one who said he would conquer the grave and then actually did it. And in fact, if the resurrection is not true, Christians like us are to be the most pitied of people. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15-14, when some of them in the church were toying with the idea that perhaps Christ is not raised from the dead, and he asks them, he says, if Christ, or he says to them, if Christ is not raised, then our preaching is empty and your faith is empty. In other words, what we are doing preaching a risen Christ, if He is not risen, that is a pointless exercise. He says in verse 17, if Christ is not raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Because think about it, if Christ is not risen, and He just like everyone else has gone into the grave and is still there in the grave decaying, if we are putting our trust in Him to save us, that is a vain hope. More than that, if the resurrection is not true, the way that Christians live their lives is a foolish waste of time. Paul says to them again, if if Christ is not raised, why do I suffer persecution as I do? And he goes on and he says, why not just eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Christian, there is literally, this is not hyperbole, there is no Christianity without the resurrection. You pull the resurrection out and you don't have a gospel anymore. The resurrection is the pinnacle of Christ's proof that He truly is who He said He is. How so? Because talk is cheap. Religious cult leaders for millennia have proved that talk is cheap. And again and again throughout the history of the world, you have someone who rises up and who claims, God told me this, God sent me here to be His representative, you should follow me. And with a bit of uh, charisma, that's not that hard to do. But it's a little more difficult to say, for instance, like Jesus did in John 10.18, it's a bit more difficult to say, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Where is Buddha? Where is Muhammad? Where is Joseph Smith? The answer for every significant quote-unquote religious leader is that they are still in the grave. Every single human since Adam until now has entered into the ring with death and they have lost. No matter how great of a following they had in life, They go into the ground and they stay in the ground. And I hope you understand what that means. What that proves by them staying in the ground is it means death wins again. Sin has prevailed again. But if Christ is raised, that changes literally everything. Because it means the Scriptures are true. It means that Jesus is exactly who He claimed to be, which means that He is Lord and God, as Thomas proclaimed, and therefore worthy of our trust and worship and service. Luke 24 is one of of the most heartwarming, faith-strengthening reports of Jesus' post-resurrection life. This is obviously after Jesus has risen from the dead. And when we get a window into these doubting, mourning disciples coming face to face with the risen Lord and seeing their mourning turn to joy. This is the only place in all of the Gospels that we're given this account. It's unique to Luke. Um, In fact, it's such a vivid and personal account that some have thought that Luke himself perhaps is one of these travelers 
Uh, we don't know that for sure. What we do know is that one of them is named Cleopas. By the way, we don't hear anything else about Cleopas in the rest of the New Testament. Um, others have thought perhaps this is a Christian couple. Maybe a husband and wife making their way back from Jerusalem to their hometown. Regardless of the identity of these two disciples, what we do know with certainty is that whoever they were, in terms of their particular identity, they were clearly on the inside circle of Jesus' disciples. Okay, and we know that for a few reasons. If you notice verses 23 and 24, remember this is Sunday afternoon. This is just hours after Christ has risen from the dead. And according to verses 23 and 24, they have already caught wind of the news of the empty tomb. And more than that, after Jesus reveals Himself to them here, they then immediately fast-track back to Jerusalem. And they, when they get to Jerusalem, they know exactly where to go to find the other disciples, even though we know the other disciples were in hiding for fear of the Jews. The only way they could know where to find them is if they were a part of the disciples. And so, these were disciples, not numbered amongst the twelve, but they were followers of Christ. And so let's consider the, the narrative here. In verse, we'll begin in verse 13. Verse 13 says, But that same day, which ties us, we could have read it um, for time's sake, we didn't, but that same day ties us into what Luke has just reported. Namely, the empty tomb. This is Sunday, and they're walking back together, making the seven-mile journey from Jerusalem back to their town in Emmaus. And by the way, they wouldn't have been the only ones doing this and making this journey. This, the, the highways, so to speak, would have been somewhat busy because this was the, on the hind end of uh, Passover, the holiday in which Jews from all over Israel would pilgrim into Jerusalem for the great feast And many of them would be departing. And now they're returning home. But this walk is not marked by great joy and celebration, but rather it is marked by deep conversation and sadness. Verse 14 tells us that they are talking about all the things which had just happened. And what else would you expect them to be talking about? You put yourself in the shoes of these two disciples. They have been through an absolutely traumatizing week. Their entire world is upside down. And they are confused about what has happened. The the one that they hoped would be the deliverer of Israel has been rejected by Israel, by the chief priests, and has been hung upon a Roman cross. And you can imagine how their hopes are dashed. And as they are in this deep conversation, a stranger enters into the scene. At least a stranger to them. Verse 15, Jesus catches up with them, probably from behind, and He begins to walk with them. Now remember, you know because of the narrative, you know that this is Jesus, but they don't know. In fact, verse 16 tells us that their eyes were restrained so that they didn't recognize Him. Notice it doesn't say that he looked different. We we have plenty of other accounts in the other Gospels in which the disciples recognized Jesus immediately. It doesn't say that he looked different and that's why they couldn't recognize him. It says that their eyes were restrained. This is a supernatural restraining going on that kept them temporarily from recognizing his true identity. And there's a reason for that that we'll see in just a few minutes. Namely, before they believe the resurrection with their own eyes, He wants them to believe the resurrection from the Scriptures themselves. And so, He begins walking with them and He asks them a question in verse 17. He asks them, what are you talking about that you are so sad about? Now, Jesus knew exactly what they were talking about. But He inquires of them here. Because He's drawing out their hearts. This is not a question that He's asking because He lacks information. This is a question He's asking to draw, to draw them out. Where are they in these things? What's going on in their hearts? How, how are they piecing together the things that have just happened in Jerusalem with what the Old Testament Scriptures have said? 
so as he's, um, excuse me, the question itself, as he asks it, it seems like it somewhat floors Cleopas and, and surprises Cleopas. And it, it's possible there's even a bit of sarcasm in, in Cleopas's response. Verse 18, Cleopas answers, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened here in, the, in these days? I mean, Cleopas is thinking to himself, certainly you're a Jew that has gone to the feast just like we did. And there's no way that you somehow just kind of slept through the horrific events that have just happened. And Jesus again graciously gives them a bit more rope in verse 19 to draw them out further. And he asks them, what things? What things have happened? And so they begin to explain from the beginning. And they say it is about Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, This man who has for these last years been showing the signs of a true prophet. Both by what he taught and what he did. Remember, these are disciples who followed him for at least some length of time. They They have heard his preaching with authority. They've seen his signs. They've seen demons cast out. They've seen healings of of the sick and raising of the dead. There's no doubt in their minds that he was great before God and the people. But then in verse 20, there's this kind of deflation. And you wonder if as they got to this point and as they spoke these next words, their voice dropped and their sadness returned. In verse 20, they say, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. Now, pause just for a second. Up until this point, everything that they have said is accurate. What they have just said happened is what truly happened. But here's the question that Jesus is interested in How were they interpreting it? And it's in verse 21 that reveals what Jesus is going after. Notice their words. We were hoping that it was He who was going to redeem Israel. You see, right there reveals where their faith is at at this moment. We were hoping. Meaning, in their minds, that hope is now gone. Because in their minds, how can the One who is supposed to redeem Israel be by our very people rejected and condemned to death and crucified on a Roman cross. And you might be here and you might kind of look down your nose upon these disciples and think that, you know, I would know better and I would do better. Don't be so sure. And so they go on in their explanation. And honestly, their words as they go on, their words don't exactly help their case. Verse 21, they say, Indeed, besides all this, Today is the third day since this has happened. And when they say this is the third day, what they're saying is it's been three three days. Meaning in their mind, he's really dead. And the reason that that doesn't help their case, when they say besides all this, it's been three days, is because what has Jesus been teaching His disciples all along would happen? John chapter 2, as early on as chapter 2 of John's Gospel, He tells the Jews, destroy this temple and on the third day I will raise it again. Mark 8.31 He tells His disciples, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and suffer many things and after three days rise again. This is not something Jesus kept hidden in a corner. This is exactly what Jesus said would happen. And so they continue in verse 22. They say, yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find His body, they came saying that, he had also, or that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that He was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women have said, had said. Now it's at that point that you, you, you begin to wonder perhaps, there's a, perhaps a little bit of light is dawning upon them. And yet, the end of the verse seems to show the bottom line of where their hearts are. But Him they did not see. So we've heard reports of angels. 
They said that they saw the tomb empty. The women said it was so. But we have not seen him. They did not see. That's a major theme we'll see in John's Gospel, by the way. These disciples are despairing because they had not seen Christ with their own eyes. That's why they're sad. That's why their hopes are dashed. And there's a lesson here. They were quicker to believe their own senses and to trust their own senses than they were to trust the words and promises of Scripture and the words of Jesus. This, is, this was precisely doubting Thomas's problem. Right? We'll look at that in depth when we get there in a while in John's Gospel. Uh, Thomas, you remember, doubting Thomas as he gets his name because of this event, the Lord appears to the other ten. Judas had gone. Thomas was absent for whatever reason. We don't know what he was doing. And so the Lord, after he's risen from the dead, he appears to the other ten. And they then tell Thomas later that we have seen the Lord. And you remember Thomas's reply, John 20, 25. He won't buy it. And he tells them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And that's no doubt a low, somewhat of a low point for Thomas. And yet it's recorded for us because we are so often like Thomas. And you remember, eight days later, Jesus appears to them again. This time, Thomas is present. And Jesus, condescending to Thomas, tells him, reach your finger here. Look at my hands. Reach your hand here. Put it into my side. And he tells Thomas, do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. And then he gives this loving, gracious rebuke. He says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That that is the exact boat that these two disciples on the road to Emmaus are in. They have not yet seen Him and so their hopes are dashed. And their faith has waned. And so notice Jesus' somewhat firm response in verse 25. He says, O foolish ones, Slow of heart to believe. Now, in saying that they are slow of heart means that their unbelief is not justified. Right? They, they are culpable in not believing. But the question is, what are they slow in heart to believe? Notice what Jesus says. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. That's incredible. You think about it. The resurrected Christ is standing right in front of them, purposefully keeping them from some divine influence from recognizing His identity. And what does He do to point them to believe the resurrection? He points them to the Old Testament Scriptures. The prophets. Prophets like Isaiah. No doubt references to Genesis and the Psalms. He doesn't just say, ta-da, here I am. But rather, He wants their faith to be rooted in the right place. He wants them to understand, God has said that this is the way it would happen all along. That all the way from the beginning of Genesis throughout to the end of the Old Covenant Scriptures, by explicit prophecy or by analogy, like Jonah being in the belly of the beast for three days, So the Christ was promised that He would be in the grave three days and then rise triumphant. This shows, by the way, how highly Jesus viewed the words of God. The Word of God. The Scriptures are actually more trustworthy than the testimony of our own eyes. And Jesus is saying to them, the Scriptures said that this would happen. Down to the very details. The the Jewish leaders condemning and crucifying the Christ is exactly what God had planned and purposed and intended all along. It's been His eternal decree for Christ to be glorified in this way. That's precisely what Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when he's speaking to the very crowd that just 
days before has crucified the Lord of glory. And he says to them, men of Israel, hear me that Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And Peter goes on and he says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now that was Peter after Pentecost, after receiving the Spirit. At this point, he's probably just as much in the dark as these disciples. Now the question is, why why did they miss this? Why are they so... Why is it such an impossibility in their minds that the Christ could be a Christ who suffers and who rises from the dead? Well, it's not because God kind of hid it in a corner in the Old Testament Scriptures, like some sort of, you know, where's Waldo? Like it's just really, really unclear what God said the, the, the Messiah would be. If that were the case, he could, he could hardly call them slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have said. They were slow to believe the Scriptures because they were blinded by their own traditions and their assumptions of what the Christ must be. We we have skeptics today who are skeptical of the resurrection and they're skeptical for entirely different reasons. Most of all because they just don't believe that the Scriptures are the Word of God. These disciples don't have that problem. They believe the Old Testament Scriptures are the Word of God. But their tradition of how to understand the Messiah from the Old Testament kept them blind to the true nature of the Christ's work. They, like most Jews, had a long tradition, wrong tradition, but nonetheless a long one, that Christ was the, great, the greater son of David, which is true, and a great king and a great deliverer, which is true, But they believe that he's simply going to be one like David in a slightly greater way. That he's going to be a king in the sense that David was a king. That the Messiah would come and throw off uh, Israel's uh, national enemies and restore Israel as a nation to a place of prominence. And they understood the fulfillment of those prophecies of the Messiah's conquering in a very earthly sense. That Christ would come with, with earthly pomp and worldly power. And yet, there's these other Old, Coven, Old Testament Scriptures that it, I would guess they just didn't quite know how to jive with the Messiah. Passages like Genesis 3.15, the very first promise of Christ when God says that He will crush the head of the serpent, but the serpent will bruise His heel. Or what about Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant? The the one righteous servant who bears the iniquity of the people. The one righteous servant who is accursed of God and cut off from God so that He might justify the many. These disciples had a sub-biblical understanding of the true glories of the kingdom of the Messiah. And so Jesus asks them in verse 26, If you have the New King James, it says, ought not the Christ. Literally is, was it not necessary for the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into His glory? Now, that question is a teaching question. He already knows the answer. The the implied answer to that is yes. In other words, when Jesus says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer in order to enter into His glory. What He's saying to them is that these sufferings they have just seen and the death of the Messiah, not only were these things not a stick in the spokes of God's plan, they were necessary to His subsequent triumph. That word necessary is a word that indicates divine purpose. That there is victory in what has just happened these last three days and in the resurrection. Christ's glory was not, as many assumed, a worldly glory, as though He's just another David, just another earthly king to destroy the Romans and establish Israel. The glory of Christ was that He came to have a kingdom that was eternal. And not just bound to one nation, but global. 
And it was a glory that he entered into only through the path of sacrifice. And not just any sacrifice, but the sacrifice of laying down his own life as the holy Lamb of God in order to redeem his sinful people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That's how Israel was to be ultimately redeemed. Not from Rome, not from any other political oppressor, but to be redeemed from sin. That is what the Gospel is about. These disciples' words in verse 21, they are so right and yet they are so wrong because what they are thinking. They say, we were hoping that it was He who was going to redeem Israel. That was a good hope, but now they're giving up that it was a, a right hope. And the problem for them is that they had failed to grasp the gravitas of what had just happened this Passover. This was a Passover like no other Passover. They saw with their physical eyes their own chief priests, their own leaders, slay the Son of God. But because they did not see it through the eyes of faith and understanding the Old Testament Scripture, they had missed the most important point. That this Passover was not like every other Passover when a sinful priest offers a lamb for the sins of Israel. This year it was the sinless God-man. The Lamb of God offering Himself up to His Father to save His people from their sins by bearing their sins upon His shoulders and rising from the dead in victory. As Christ died, it is not Him being subject to some great travesty that he could not fight. It was Christ laying down his life willingly so that he might become the Savior of all of his people. And as he rose from the dead this Sunday morning, the new creation dawns. And so verse 27, it says, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. I don't know how much further they had to walk along uh, the road to get to Emmaus, but don't you wish that you could have sat in and just been a fly on the wall listening to that opening up of the Scriptures? I mean, there are several passages that would be obvious ones that we would think think of the Psalms, uh, Genesis 50, Isaiah 53. We're not told exactly what Jesus said, but we are told that He weaves the Old Testament together and shows them that all these things they had witnessed are according to the perfect plan and determination of God. And so as they approach Emmaus to where they were going, verse 28, Jesus indicates to them that He would keep walking, that He would go further. But no doubt, these two disciples, impressed with His exposition of the Scriptures, they constrain Him, saying to Him, no, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is well, uh, well spent. And this is, I mean, we don't know for sure, but it's probably, most likely, one of their homes, or if this was a, a Christian couple, it was their home. And Jesus agrees, and He goes in to stay with them. And it's very interesting, just the account that Luke records in the remainder of these verses. As they sit down for the evening meal, it almost always would be the host who would take the lead and break bread and who oversees the meal. But here Jesus takes the lead. And though Luke doesn't tell us exactly how that happened, I do think there's significance. Because verse 30, Luke writes, He took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. And suddenly, in this action, as He gives them the bread the disciples' eyes are opened and they recognize who He truly is. Now, why reveal Himself in the bread? Why not reveal reveal Himself to them sometime along the road? Uh, Why not as they were about to part ways? Luke doesn't explicitly tell us, but this moment is significant to these disciples because they'll even talk about what happened later on in the chapter about what happened when Jesus broke the bread. And... I think that it's a tangible illustration that Christ Himself is the bread of life 
who gives spiritual life to His people. You remember His words to the crowds in John 6.35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in Me shall never thirst. And I think there's a picture here that until the bread from heaven, Christ Himself, breaks open for us the bread of life and grants us spiritual sight, we will not see Christ as we ought to see Him. And as He breaks this bread and hands it to these two disciples, and perhaps as He hands them the pieces of bread, their eyes for the first time notice the nail-pierced hands and the same, the same wounds that doubting Thomas will soon see, their eyes are opened and they realize this is He in whom we have believed. This is the bread of life. And it says that with that, He vanishes. Uh, vanishes from sight. It's one of the very fascinating post-resurrection records of Jesus' actions. Um, elsewhere in John's Gospel, we're told that He seemingly is able to come in through locked doors. Um, I don't claim for a moment to understand how all that works. None of us has experienced the glorified body to know. But we're simply told that as soon as their eyes are enlightened, He vanishes. Because He's finished His purpose with these disciples. He's restored their faith. He's restored their hope and their joy. And honestly, try to it's impossible for us to do to the full extent. But put yourself in their shoes of the hope that they had that had been dashed in that glorious moment when they realized Christ is truly risen from the grave. Christ is truly alive again. And as they realize all is not lost, all is not lost, our mourning has turned to joy, they see that God has kept His promises. Well, at these things, at these things, these disciples rush back in the night. They rush back to Jerusalem in order to tell the others what they have seen and it seems, if we didn't read it, but you can keep reading on, it seems that these two disciples will get the privilege of seeing the risen Christ a second time as He appears to the other disciples in the upper room. But Christ for now has departed from these two disciples. And pretty soon, after this point, He would leave them forever as He ascends back into heaven. And as He would take His seat at the right hand of God the Father until He is sent back a second time, His coming which we are still awaiting. And yet, what are they left with for their encouragement? As Jesus departs from them, as He would go into heaven, as He would send the Helper, the Holy Spirit, what are they left with? Notice verse 32. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us when? while He talked to us on the road and while He opened to us the Scriptures. They had the Scriptures. It is in the Scriptures, Christian, that we have the foundation of our hope. And they were saying to one another, did you experience what I experienced? As He opened up Moses and Isaiah and the Psalms, I felt as if my heart was strangely warmed and burning within me. That's the precise language John Wesley... I've told the story before. That's the precise language John Wesley used of his own conversion to Christ. And you probably remember the story. He was unconverted and he became a preacher because he knew he was unconverted. And he thought that by preaching the Gospel to others, he might somehow save his own soul that he might actually come to believe the Gospel that he was offering to others. And, and he knew he was lost, and someone invited him to come and to listen to Luther's exposition of Galatians, just read, being read. And he regretfully went, didn't really want to go, and he shows up and he hears this exposition of Martin Luther, or excuse me, it was his commentary on Romans, not Galatians. And he said that I felt my heart strangely warmed as the Scriptures were opened. And he said, I did trust Christ alone and an assurance was given to me that He had indeed taken away my sins. That is what these disciples felt, a burning as the Scriptures were opened up, 
as they read of the truth of God's word, that the death and resurrection of Christ was precisely what God had foretold would happen for the salvation of His people. And their hearts were warmed by the truth. Brother and sister, let me ask you this morning, this, this morning, is your heart warmed by the truth of the Scripture? As you have Christ opened up for you, as you read of the simple truth, even if you're here and you're a child and you, have, you don't have a lot of understanding, but you know that I believe Christ has risen from the dead, is your heart warmed by the truth that Christ has risen from the dead? Is your experience that of the hymn writer? We didn't, we didn't sing it today. I love to tell the story. It will be my theme in glory. To tell the old, old story of Jesus and His love. I love to tell the story for those who know it best seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. And when in scenes of glory... I sing the new, new song. It will be the old, old story that I have loved so long. Is that the experience of your heart? That you don't view hearing again about the resurrection as something that is boring. As something that is just a duty that I guess I have to do because it's Resurrection Sunday and people go to church on Resurrection Sunday. Or is your faith fueled by the fact that Christ lives forevermore and is returning in glory for me? And therefore, because He lives, I can face whatever today has or tomorrow because the fact that He lives forever, He will give me strength. My friend, I want to speak to you as we close. If you're here and you're not a Christian, if you are not trusting Christ for the redemption of your soul, my prayer is that you would be jealous to become a Christian. That by the grace of God and by God's Spirit, your heart, which perhaps right now is cold to the things of God, and you're sitting there and you're doubting and you're disbelieving, my prayer is that your heart would be made alive and warmed to the glory of Christ crucified and risen as it is read for us in the Scriptures. If you are here and you are standing far off from Christ, remaining in doubt and disbelief, His words to you today are the same that He gave to these disciples. Slow in heart to believe all that the Scriptures have spoken. God has given us sufficient testimony of who Christ is. He has given us sufficient testimony to hold us accountable that He has resurrected from the dead. And as the book of Acts tells us, that is proof that one day Christ will come back to judge the world. Therefore, my friend, be not unbelieving, but believe. Come this... You, you can be, in your mind, you think you are the worst sinner. And you think that you have sinned more than anyone else has and you have dark secrets that you would be ashamed if anyone knew about. And Christ's word to you today is come to Me and find rest for your souls. You don't have to clean yourself up. In fact, you cannot clean yourself up. You must come as you are because it is only Christ who can cleanse you. So my friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I pray that you would be jealous to know Christ. To enjoy the peace of sins forgiven. That having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That you would know that glory and that blessing of not living with a bad conscience and a fear of death because you fear what's coming on the other side, but rather living a life of assurance knowing that yes, I am worthy of hell and left to myself, I cannot be saved but Christ has died in my stead and risen in my stead, and therefore, by faith in Him, I cannot be lost. Sinner, come to Christ. Trust Christ. If you reject His overtures of mercy now, you will find Him on the last day a most unflinching judge. Our last breath in this life is the last opportunity to repent and trust Christ. And then comes the judgment for us.
There's nothing after death where we get another chance, where we realize I missed it, and now let's make good on that promise Jesus made. Today is the day of salvation. Flee to Christ. Take care for the state of your eternal soul and come to Him who can save you and bring you near to God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would rejoice, every single one of us, whether our young children to the oldest person in this room, we pray that we would rejoice by faith that Christ is risen from the dead. That it is in vain that they tried to seal Him in the grave. That in great power the stone was rolled away just as You had promised. And Christ arose and emerged triumphant from the grave. Father, we thank You for the great assurance the Gospel gives to our souls. Lord, without the Gospel, we would be utterly lost. We would be utterly fearful, discouraged, rightfully fearing the sense of Your judgment falling upon us. But because You have given Your Son, we can live with the assurance and knowledge that we have become sons of God, adopted into Your eternal family, that we right now, by faith in Christ, in Your sight are considered just as righteous as Your Son because His righteousness has been credited to our account. Father, we pray that none in this room would go away indifferent to the things of Your Word. We pray, Lord, that You would keep the devil, the evil one, from snatching the seed of the Word. Lord, we pray for any who are counting the cost. Those who are seeing the truthfulness of the Christian faith and yet are still torn and hanging on to their love for the world and other things, we pray, Lord, bring them effectually all the way into Your kingdom. We pray that they would not tarry and wait any longer. That they would flee to Christ and fly to Christ. Father, we pray that You would bless us as we come to the Lord's Supper. We pray, Father, that we would come with reverence and that we would come with joy and celebration as we remember the death of the One who is coming again because He has risen from the dead. Father, write Your Word upon our hearts, we pray. We ask that You would be gracious to us. Bless Your church, we ask. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.